Matthew chapter 16. Pray for those kids as they go. They're going to get taught the Word of God. Isn't that a good thing? Aren't you glad that we teach the Word of God and we study the Word of God? It's so good. Over the last um, 30 or 40 years, I really believe that the enemy has um, launched a very intentional new push to uh, redefine who Jesus is and to reshape and alter what Jesus taught. Now, I know that's a very bold statement at the start of our study, but, but I really believe that if we look at what's happened since maybe our grandparents' generation or maybe even our parents' generation, we have seen a very strong shift and a very strong redefining of the Word of God. And it's happened externally and somewhat internally that the teaching of Jesus by our culture, as they view it, has been really modified to, to only emphasize His love and His tolerance. That's a word you hear a lot of from secular culture, that Jesus accepts everybody, that He really doesn't hold us accountable for who we are because His love covers all. And that is true uh, to an extent. And instead of really looking at the Word of God and what Jesus actually said to believers and non-believers, there's been the reshaping. And the problem that really has been disarming or disconcerting over the last uh, 20 or 30 years is that churches have allowed it. And there's become a real selective teaching of the Word of God uh, where we've strongly emphasized felt needs, strongly emphasized personal application that, that um, really doesn't offend, that really doesn't challenge, that really doesn't call us to a point of decision and of change. And as that's happened, many Christians uh, have modified their theology, and they've modified their lifestyle to be more culturally relevant and to be more participatory instead of set apart. So there's been an adjustment externally, I believe, a new push by the enemy, and there's been an adjustment internally that the church uh, has, in very large part, not true of every church, pray it's never true of our church, but the church has, has allowed this modification to take place. And those two things feed off each other. By choosing not to examine what I would call the harder words of Jesus about what it means to be a disciple, if we don't teach the whole counsel of God, if we don't look at the difficult sayings of Jesus, then worldliness can be more easily justified. And as worldliness is justified, it then becomes easier to gravitate toward only the message of grace and only the message of, of allowance rather than the whole truth of God. Now, this is a delicate little balance. And we have to be careful that we're teaching grace and we're teaching truth. We're teaching that God loves sinners, that Christ died for sinners, which is all of us, that God loves unconditionally, that, that He um, cares about us enough to send His Son to take our place and to be our sacrifice and to take our sins to the cross, and that when we trust in Jesus Christ and we confess our sins and turn from our sins, that God will redeem us forever. That's grace. That's, that's the undeserved favor of God because of His love and because of the work of Jesus Christ. But there's also truth. To get to grace, to get to the point where we can trust Christ, we have to turn from our sin, which means we have to acknowledge our sin. 
which means we have to admit that we have failed, that there's no way of salvation on our own, that God doesn't just accept whatever we do and just kind of we can get away with whatever we want and, and that there's no consequence because there is a consequence of sin. If we don't do this, we marginalize the words of Christ and we change our biblical doctrine. We have to admit to our sin, we have to confess our sin, we have to repent our sin. And we can no longer at that point, because God changes us, desire or move toward our old life. We have to live now in the new holy life that he's given us by his spirit. That's why when we really examine the words of Christ, and I, as I've prepared this series called Red Letters, and as I've looked at everything, every word that Jesus said in all four Gospels, I've been struck by the fact that many of Jesus' words were very difficult and very hard and really challenges because what did Jesus say? He said, I came to seek and to save that which was what? Tell me, lost. He came to seek and save that which is lost, which is everybody. He came to be a savior for everybody. So he calls us to repentance. And as we look through the Gospels, he challenges spiritual hypocrisy. He says, many people just honor me with their mouths, but they really don't honor me with their hearts. He says, uh, he, he, he criticizes and condemns people and cities for their unbelief. He says in one passage, I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide families between those who love me and those who don't love me. And then he says that, that those who follow me may suffer for their identification with me. I mean, these are not easy phrases. This is not just all love and hugs and everything's wonderful and you don't have to do anything. This is a real statement of challenge. Now, why did he do that? Jesus was going to go to the cross to take our sins on himself. He was going to go to pay the penalty for us and to provide a salvation that we don't deserve by any stretch at the cost of his own sacrifice. So he wanted us to know that it's not just a free pass, that, that okay, I'll save you, and now you can just do whatever you want. He expects and demands and deserves for us to live as disciples. And that's a hard saying because we want it to be different but God takes the authenticity of our faith very seriously, and he examines our hearts to validate that. He's not fooled by the outward appearance. Since, since the book of Kings, he says, I don't look on the outward appearance. I'm not, I'm not fooled by it. You may fool other people by it, but I look on the heart. And that's why he's so direct in challenging hypocrisy and pride and worldliness like he does here. Now, we're in Matthew chapter 16. And here, as we're going to read in just a moment, the Pharisees are testing him. So he uses this opportunity to call us to recognize the obvious indicators of what's happening in the spiritual state of the world and then to guard our own hearts against being spiritually corrupted. So there's two parts to this. There's the clear danger that we should easily see that's going on in the world right now that should awaken us spiritually and, and tug at our hearts and constantly get us to be preparing and looking for His return. There's, there's the outward signs, and then there's the subtle danger that's constantly present 
which Jesus warns us about, he says it can change and corrupt the state of your spiritual walk if you aren't careful to avoid it. So let's read what he says here. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. There's a lot here and we really won't be able to get to all of it, but let's try to hit the main parts of it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. The disciples, verse 5, came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, oh, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the five thousand? Or how many loaves, uh, excuse me, how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the four thousand, which is the passage right above this? And how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I don't speak about you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now we see in verses 1 to 4 that the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, we need a sign from heaven. Now that is in no way a sincere request based on their burgeoning faith that, that they really want proof, that they really are ready to believe, and, and if they could just see one more thing, that that, that would take them over the top. It says in the text that Matthew writes that, that this is an attempt to trap and disprove him because the Pharisees were religious, but it was all self-righteous and self-centered. So when Jesus called people to repent, they rejected that. And then when he basically said, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah, they, they violently rejected that statement. So it's ironic that, that they're standing here before him saying, hey, Jesus, uh, we, we'd really like a sign from heaven. And as they're standing there asking that, they're talking to the tangible presence of heaven right in front of them. Lord, if a teacher, if you would just give us a sign from heaven, that, then we'd be convinced. And Jesus has to be just shaking his head going, I'm from heaven. I'm God in flesh. How could you miss it? Uh, not to mention the teaching and the miracles and everything else. But, but you guys are hard-hearted, so you don't even recognize me. And you of all people should recognize me because you know the law and you know the prophecies and you know that I fulfilled every single one of them. Now there's a really important spiritual principle that hit me as I studied this that, that we need to be careful not to miss here. And the spiritual principle is that pride ruins spiritual discernment. Pride ruins spiritual discernment. When our hearts are full of ourselves, we can't understand and will not accept truth. Now that can take a variety of forms, 
But the bottom line is that when we love ourselves, and that, how many know that's far more pervasive than we think, right? When we love ourselves, it causes our heart to be hardened. And it causes our heart to be closed to what the Lord wants to show us to the extent that the most quote-unquote religious people in the nation are standing before the Son of God and not only won't recognize Him, not only don't accept Him, but are thinking at every turn, how can we kill Him? So they really didn't want to know what heaven was doing. They really didn't want the presence of God. They really didn't want what God was going to give. They didn't really want undeniable proof because if they did, they would have seen Jesus. But their hearts were full of themselves and their hearts were hardened. And when our hearts are full of ourselves and get hardened, we can't discern what God's doing. If you're seeking the Lord right now, if you are asking God, Lord, show me direction on this or, or, or work in my life or whatever the case may be, you better make sure and I better make sure in this church as we seek God's discernment and leading uh, for a building, we better make sure that our hearts are humble before the Lord because if we're proud before Him, God's not going to show us. And when He shows us, even if He's gracious and shows us, we won't be able to understand it. There's a block, there's a, there's a fuzziness there that we can't get. Now that principle has really deep implications for everyday lives, and it's why the enemy works so hard to promote self, because he knows that it will limit our understanding and our acceptance of God's Word and, and, and our understanding of the Spirit's leading. And again, it highlights the importance of humility and repentance and self-sacrifice, the things we talk about all the time. Being grateful every single day like we just sang and we praise the Lord and we lifted our hands and our, our hearts were full that, that God has redeemed us and delivered us and saved us. See, the Spirit of God never fills us when we're full of ourselves. The Spirit of God only fills us when we're empty. Empty of self, filling of the Spirit. Full of self, the Spirit just stands on the outside and goes, I can't, I'm not going to occupy that space because it's got you there. So if we want to be filled by the Spirit, we've got to be emptied of self. And again, that's so subtle. We'll look at more in the, in the second part of the passage in a few minutes. But before we do that, look at what he tells the Pharisees and what he tells us. He says in the first couple verses here that we're able to look at the sky and we're able to get a strong indication of, of what the weather is going to be like the next day. When I was a kid, see if you guys know this, do you remember the phrase, red in the morning, sailors take warning, red in the night, sailors are like, how many, how many learned that phrase as a kid? Okay, most of you. Why did we learn that? I didn't live near any sailors. I mean, I, I, that phrase hit me again this week, red in the morning, so, but, but it's an indication that you can tell by the sky what's going to happen. Now, how many saw the beautiful sunset last night? That was unbelievable right the sky was on fire i probably took 50 pictures of it it was so beautiful and the red was and the orange and the yellow was lighting up the sky and the geese were flying around. i mean it was absolutely beautiful and you could look at that and say to yourself without even looking at weather channel tomorrow's going to be beautiful and you know what sun came up this morning there's blue sky there's not a cloud it's absolutely gorgeous because the sky last night told us that 
when I woke up Friday morning early before the sun rose, I looked out and there was a line of clouds and I could just see a little bit of white on the horizon. And I said to myself, it's going to be cloudy today. It's, going to, it's not going to be a nice day. The sun's not going to be shining today because the sky tells us that. Now, Jesus says, look back at the text, that we can discern this by how the sky looks. But he says you should have an even greater discernment when you look at what's going on in the culture and when you see the signs of the times. He says only a wicked and adulterous generation needs more proof of what's going on. Only a generation that is full of itself and desires evil and is rebellious against God wants more proof because their hearts are hardened and their minds are closed and they don't really want to recognize that man is rebellious and sinful and that God's going to hold people accountable for that. So they change the message of Christ to be all love and tolerance and acceptance with no consequence for sin and then they say, well, everything seems fine. We're never outraged by something that we participate in. So if we are participating in sin, if we're choosing to have that in our lives and to be a daily part of our lives, we're not going to be outraged by it. The more we love the world, the less bothered we're going to be by the rapid spiritual decline of our culture. In fact, if we love the world enough, we'll not only take part in it, but we'll actually start to defend it and then justify it and then expect everybody else to approve of it and to conform to it. And that's exactly where Christianity is today. And it's a sign in the times. It should not be shocking to us. It's right there in our Bibles. Now you say, well, Paul, that's a little harsh. Uh, you're, you're being judgmental. Uh, that's, again, part of what the enemy's trying to do is say that any Christian that lives by the Bible is judgmental. But, but let's prove what I just said because I don't want it to be my words this morning. I pray the Holy Spirit's the one speaking. So how do we know that this is a sign of the times? We'll look back at verse 4. Because Jesus says the only sign we need is the sign of Jonah. Now he's primarily talking about his resurrection because as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth. He was, he was buried crucified, buried, and put to, put to rest. But then he rose again the third day, just as Jonah was spit out of the mouth of the giant fish on the third day, for the purpose, in both cases, of people getting saved. God didn't put Jonah in the whale for three days, or whatever it was, big fish, I, I don't know what it was. He didn't put him in, in the whale for three days so that he could be spit out and then run right back away from Nineveh. He spit him out so that he would go to Nineveh and would preach the gospel and the people would get, get saved. Excuse me. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die and be buried so that he could just resurrect and say, okay, see my, my trick? I did that. Isn't that great? He rose again so we can be saved. So Jesus says, the only sign you need is the sign of Jonah. Nothing else is going to convince mankind. If you don't trust that Christ is the answer, then there's no other option. There's nothing else to look at that you can say, well, Jesus doesn't work, but I can do this. There's no other option. And here he's talking to this generation the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's saying, I'm standing right before you. I've declared I'm the Son of God. I'm going to go to the cross. You're going to kill me. I'm going to rise again the third day, and you're still not going to believe. All we need is the sign of Jonah. 
But I believe there's a secondary meaning here. When we think about the spiritual condition of the Ninevites, we see a great similarity to the present age. Nineveh was located, if you know your Middle Eastern geography, and we should, Nineveh was located in what is a rock now near the modern-day city of Mosul. You've probably heard Mosul in the, in the news. It's the place where there is so much fighting and so much death. The Ninevites were a brutal people. They were bloodthirsty. They were evil. They were violent. They were ruthless with how they tortured their enemies. The, the, the methods of punishment and, and killing that they used are very similar to what we see going on right now, which is not really being reported by the mainstream media. You see it through alternate sources. But Nineveh was also a source of pride for the Assyrian Empire, and a king named Sennacherib, I know this is boring history, but it's important. Sennacherib built a huge temple there that was designed to be a narcissistic statement about the power of mankind. And all through the temple, there were pictures and statues showing how brutally he had defeated his enemies. Now, the Bible and history both tell us that Nineveh wanted nothing to do with the true God. They rejected him so completely that when God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to, to, to tell them about me, and I want you to call them to repentance. Jonah says, you've got to be joking me. I am not going anywhere near that. I am going to run as far away in the opposite direction as I possibly can. It'd be like if God said to you today, go and stand in the square in Damascus and preach my gospel without shame. You would go, mm, maybe we can choose a different location. Nineveh was brutal and ruthless, and the people hated God, and there was little spiritual hope because they were so hard-hearted, and Jonah said, I don't want anything to do with that because it's scary and there's not going to be any change. This is the sign of Jonah. I believe that the state of our world this morning is in the sign of Jonah. And if we know our Bible at all, and if we watch the news with any degree of spiritual discernment, it will not be hard to conclude that Jesus' return may be at any moment because everything is set up before it. And when his true church leaves, the world will quickly descend into complete rebellion. Islam will become the world religion with the consent, consent of Rome. And Christ will be rejected like never before. It is as clear as the sky was last night. The red we saw in the sky that said tomorrow is going to be a beautiful day. I don't even need to turn on channel 64. I just know it's going to happen because the sky tells me that. We need to look at what's going on and the sign of Jonah in our world this morning and prepare ourselves for the reality of what's happening. Now that leads to the second part of Jesus' teaching, and let's deal with this real quick because he warns here in verses 5 to 12 about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The signs of Jonah are overt. If we're watching what's going on in the world, we know it's overt. It has become even more overt over the last two years. It is on a rapid pace. But the signs, uh, while the signs of Jonah are obvious, the danger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is far more subtle. Remember, these are the religious leaders of the nation. But there was something about them that was insidious. And Jesus called it out because he says there's a risk 
if you listen to them, of spiritual uh, permeation. There's a, there's a risk of, of spiritual corruption. And I want you to notice who he's talking here. Because, because the disciples, after this whole incident with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they go across the lake, and they get to the other side, and it's kind of sit-down time, and they're having dinner, and just kind of hanging out. And the discussion starts, and the disciples uh, are, are listening to Jesus, and Jesus comes up with this, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they're going, oh, stink. It's because we forgot to bring bread. Now he's ticked off at us. And he says, no, listen, listen. You guys don't have faith. Listen. I'm warning you about the danger of the internal threat of those who seem religious but aren't really spiritual. There's the external risk of what's going on. That's the sign of Jonah. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other proof. You don't need to know this or this or this or connect the dots here or do this or when does this do this. And, and, and Listen, that's wonderful. We should study those things. But don't get too caught up in those things. There have been a lot of people over the years who have said, well, because this is happening, that's going to happen and the Lord's going to return. And every time they've been wrong. No man knows the day or hour. He says, all you need to do is look at the signs. Look at what's going on. Look at what's happening in the world. That, that will be your indicator that you need to get ready. But beyond the external threat, there's an internal threat. So let's understand real quick who the Pharisees and the Sadducees were and what they believed. And then we'll close our time by studying what, why Jesus used leaven as an example of what made them dangerous. Okay, you ready? Write some things down. The Pharisees were representatives, basically, of the religious working class. They were the, they were the everyday leaders. And many of them were businessmen. Most of the, most of the priests were Pharisees. They held uh, some of the positions of power in, in the Sanhedrin, which was the body of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribe that, that were kind of the religious ruling class. So, so they were a big part of the Sanhedrin. They had spiritual influence over the nation. They were seen as the ones that were the, the spiritual leaders. They were the ones that walked around in the black robes with the little bells on them and wore the phylacteries, little, little boxes with the law on their arm and on their forehead. You can still see them when you go to Israel today. So the Pharisees were the, were the ones who were seen as the, the priests and, and, and the spiritual leaders. But Jesus calls them out. He says, you're arrogant, you're self-righteous, you're critical, and you hold to a false religion because you've adapted the law for your own purposes and you've done it to keep yourself powerful. Then there was the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the, were the higher class. They were the elites. They were the ones who really were kind of uh, lording it over everybody else. So they didn't relate to the average person. They held the prominent seats on the Sanhedrin. The, the, the high priest and the chief priests were all Sadducees. The, the lesser priests were the Pharisees. So the Sadducees were the, were the elitist people. But it wasn't because they were spiritual. In fact, they kept a relationship with the Romans... They were the ones that dealt with the Romans who were occupying Israel at the time of Jesus because they wanted the political connection. There wasn't a spiritual mindset with the Sadducees. They were more the politicians. The, the Pharisees were the priests. The Sadducees were the politicians. And they worked together in this strange hybrid called the Sanhedrin. The problem with the Sadducees was their theology was very skewed. 
They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. There was no resurrection of the body. There were no rewards and punishment after death because there is no life after death. So just as Jesus describes the Pharisees, if we want to uh, identify them in some way, the Pharisees were the religious hypocrites. They had a false belief in, in God's word. They, they adapted God's word for their own selfish purposes. And the whole motive of the Pharisees was pride. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be recognized as spiritual and religious. But their religion was all up here and not in here. So Jesus condemns them. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. There's nothing in your heart. There's nothing going on. It's all for show. You're hypocrites. And then the Sadducees were theological deviants. They rejected God's truth. And they were preoccupied with power and advancement instead of what's spiritual. This is a danger to the modern church or postmodern church or whatever we're in right now. That, that we become preoccupied with power and reputation and being noticed rather than being recognized for being spiritual. Really spiritual. Really humbly broken, spiritually dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. Which is why you don't hear much about the Holy Spirit outside of the Assemblies of God, which is the fastest growing denomination right now. Because now there's a divide in Christianity. Those who understand that the Holy Spirit is living and active, and those who are just in it for themselves. That's what's happening in Christianity. I'm not being a prophet. I'm just telling you what's going on. So he says, look back at the text, be careful. Because in the day and age that we live in, this takes on very different and subtle forms as we live in the days of Jonah. And I want you to notice the example that he uses because it helps us to understand the, the nature and the danger of the influence. He says, I'm not going to miss this particular pulpit. He says that it's like leaven. Now, leaven is similar, or maybe it's identical, I'm not sure, to yeast. A leavening agent is something that changes the property of dough. So we need to say, all right, that's strange. Jesus is sitting on the side of the Galilee with the disciples, and he says to them, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, why would he use the word leaven? What is it about yeast that has spiritual applications. What properties does it have that speak to us? Listen now carefully. What is it about the properties of yeast that we should guard our hearts and mind against? We need to understand that the enemy it, it isn't going to, to be most effective influencing us using outside factors. If we really love the Lord, it, it, we're, we're not going to be tempted by outside factors. We're not going to be constantly looking at the world going, wow, I really want to be like that. We're going to consider ourselves aliens who have a new heart and a new mind and, and want to be separate from that so we can influence the world. If we really love the Lord, the outside factors aren't going to get us. What is going to tempt to corrupt us is those people who seem similar but have different motives. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of those who appear religious and say all the right things. I find over the years of doing ministry that many Christians are, are insecure that they aren't spiritual enough. 
that they're not spiritual enough in how they pray and, and what they do to serve. But, but listen, we need to look at the disciples for the truth that Jesus doesn't use those who are spiritually elite. He uses those who are humble and holy and who love him. If he used the elite who are proud of themselves, he would have gone right to the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, you're my boys. You and I are going to change this nation because we're going to work together. Instead, he condemns the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he picks fishermen and tax collectors and everyday guys who had no education and no training. And he says, you're the ones who are going to change the world. And when you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Pharisees and the Sadducees look at the disciples and they're intimidated by them because they recognize they've been with Jesus and they have a power and authenticity to their spiritual life that they don't even recognize. God uses those not who have higher education, although higher education is great. He doesn't use those who are in positions of political power. Just look at our government and you'll know that's true. He doesn't use those who are astute in business and have all the answers for how that works. He uses those who have a heart for the Lord and surrender to the Spirit. You want to be used by God to influence other people for Christ? Be that person. Because God will use you in an amazing way. That means we have to guard against the yeast. So let's very quickly, what are the characteristics of yeast that have spiritual implications? Let me give you 30 seconds each, six. What are the six characteristics of yeast that we need to guard against spiritually? First of all, yeast is a fungus. I wanted to know what a fungus was even though I took biology and chemistry and did very poorly in both. A fungus, by definition, is a parasite that lives off living or dead matter. Yeast is a fungus. It's a parasite. And while there are good fungi, that's the plural fungus in case you didn't know, so a science lesson today, there are good fungi and there are bad fungi. But the fact is that fungus takes life instead of giving it. And that's not characteristic of a believer. Yeast is a fungus. The enemy is constantly trying to steal life, which is why he enjoys being a fungus and why it's no surprise that fungus only grows in the dark. Yes, that is a spiritual metaphor. Fungus only grows in the dark. So he says, beware of the yeast. Beware of the fungus. Second, yeast penetrates and spreads quickly. If you don't believe that, go make some homemade bread. And as soon as you dump in the yeast, watch everything change. Yeast spreads and penetrates quickly. And Jesus warns about this type of spiritual corruption because he knows how fast it can perpetuate. And this is especially true in churches. The enemy wants to divide and destroy every single evangelical, theologically biblical church in the world today. 
We are not in competition with other churches that love the Lord and preach the gospel. We're fellow brothers and sisters. We want them to thrive as much as we hope they want us to thrive. We need to pray for them and their pastors and their leaders and their people, and hopefully they're praying for us because we're in this together. But know that the enemy wants to destroy all of us. So we have to be on guard against any kind of spiritual corruption that spreads. Incorrect theology, worldliness, moral compromise, gossip, slander. Those things all spread like a cancer and they infect the body. Why? Third property of yeast. Yeast corrupts and spoils. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had modified the law that they were undermining the word of God and because the people weren't educated and many people couldn't read, they were confusing the people spiritually and he knows that can happen now and is happening now in the church. That's why the word of God must be central and we must rightly divide it. And if there's one thing that concerns me about the state of the American church this morning, it's how easily and how readily we have deviated from biblical theology and push toward weak theology that focuses on easy believism and no expectation. It is true, and it's horrible, and it's sad, especially as a pastor, to see that. And, and God constantly warns me, Paul, watch your heart and make sure that you are keeping the Word of God central. And I told the leaders this week, if you ever hear me not doing that, you come up to me and confront me, because the Word of God must be central in this church. Yeast corrupts. Fourth, yeast puffs up. If you add yeast to dough, what happens? The dough rises, right? That's what makes bagels so tasty. That's what makes coffee cake so good. I love coffee cake. Isn't it so good? And donuts. Mmm. Can't eat those things anymore. I'm too old now. But yeast puffs up. And that is a profound, listen now, that's a profound spiritual metaphor for pride. He says, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees incites pride and self-centeredness in our hearts. And you know what God does to pride? He opposes it. He doesn't allow it. He doesn't put up with it. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't say, it's okay. I know you're proud. It's just human nature. I'm going to let it happen. You, you can make it about yourself. God never, ever, 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 ever says that. He says, I oppose the proud, and I give grace to the humble. Anything that puffs you up, get away from it. Anything that is designed to elevate you, Neglect it, because God opposes pride. You say, well, God, God's, uh, I'm getting an advanced work. That's fine, but don't walk around bragging about it. Don't say, look at what I've done, look at what I've accomplished, because that's the devil's tool to get us away from the Lord. Humble, sensitive to the Lord. Number five, I've got to move on. Yeast looks stagnant, but it's active. This is one of the weirdest things about yeast, is that those little buggers are actually living. It's living fungi. Everybody say, ooh. You get the little packet, right? And you keep it in the fridge. You have to keep it in the fridge because it's living. And then you pour it out and you put it into the dough. And it interacts with the ingredients. Now, you can't really see that. 
you can't see that it's little living fungi that are doing their little jobs. You just see the effects of its existence. And like pride, this is so subtle, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Jesus says, beware. Be on guard. Stand fast against it. Because the yeast doesn't seem like a big deal. It seems stagnant, but it's active. And then last, and we're done. Yeast creates something that can damage. When yeast is fermented, it changes from sugar to alcohol. And alcohol can produce a result that harms us and harms those around us. So, yeast, while it has some good points, and while it does some things, it can also create something that damages. That's why Jesus warns about the impact of it in our lives and in our church, because it changes the nature of the situation and can easily and quickly corrupt. Listen, we live in a very strange time. We live in a very disconcerting time in history, and we are seeing similar parallels to the days of Noah, and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the days of Elijah, and the days of the prophets, and the days of Jonah, and the days of Jesus. And what is, is, is written in Revelation is being borne out in the news every single day. We can't help but conclude that these are the last days. And the most important thing that we can do, listen now, I'm done. The most important thing that we can do is to make sure that we are living according to the Word of God and that we're walking by His Spirit and that we're sharing His gospel, which we can only do, we will only be able to do those three things when we are aggressively guarding our hearts and minds against spiritual corruption and compromise. When Jesus returns, he is going to be looking for those who are faithful and those who are holy and those who are anticipating his return. We have all the signs we need. We have the complete word of God. We have his spirit to teach us. Now he says, beware. Be on guard. Watch yourself. Guard your heart and mind. Don't fall away. I'm coming soon. Don't fall away. Be faithful to me, and I'll be faithful to you. And when I see you, I want to smile and say, well done. Well done. You did it. You persevered. You were faithful to me. Now enter into the joy of my presence. May God help us to do that. Let's close our eyes.